For the next four Sundays, we're going to be getting ready for Christmas. The season is called Advent, means coming, and we're anticipating the coming of Christ at Christmas as we celebrate his birth. So we don't want Christmas to sneak up on us, for us to get to it and go, oh, I wasn't quite ready. This is a time of getting ready. And each week we're going to light one more candle in the Advent wreath, and uh, the light will increase until uh, the coming of the one who is the light of the world. So looking forward to that. And on Christmas Eve, we will have a candlelight service. We'll add one more candle. That'll be the Christ candle, pure white in the middle. And from that one light, we'll spread light throughout this whole worship center. And it's just wonderful to see that light spread. And it just reminds us of the spread of the gospel one life at a time as we reach out with the good news of Christ. If you ever go to Disney World, be sure to catch the laser light show at the Epcot Center. It happens uh, at the close of the day. It's dark, and uh, they have this amazing laser light show that is choreographed with music and fireworks. It is absolutely dazzling. Uh, you, you don't have to uh, pay extra for it. You've paid enough to get in. But you, you don't have to sign up for a timeshare presentation. You don't even have to give them your email address. You just come and experience this thing, and you walk away going, I was so privileged to be able to see that. Over these next four weeks, the theme we're considering is the lights of Christmas. Um, this season of Advent, this season of ever-increasing light, runs throughout the Christmas story. And so we're going to be unpacking a passage each week that speaks about light in conjunction with the coming of Christ. Uh, this week, we're going to consider light that dazzles, kind of like the Epcot laser light show, except better. So light that dazzles. It's the story of the shepherds from the perspective of the light that they saw and in that story, we're going to find three great privileges that they were given. And so I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, uh, there is someone coming down the row here with a stack of them. Just get his attention and he will hand you one. And you're welcome to take it home with you if you need one at home. But we'll be in Luke chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 8. And so that's on page 716 in the Bibles that, that we're passing out. Page 716, Luke chapter 2. We're going to see in, in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, the word glory appears three times. And uh, these appearances of this word glory reflect three great privileges that the shepherds were given relative to the glory of God. And the first privilege was seeing glory. They got to see glory. Uh, look at verses 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. The glory of the Lord shone around them. What did that look like? You just about have to leave the 21st century in order to appreciate it. At least we need to leave any place that has street lights and city lights. I was talking with uh, someone who spent a great deal of time in Central Africa, and she mentioned that uh, out there it is so dark that, that she said you can see every star in the sky, every star. A bit of an overstatement maybe, but the point is that apart from city lights, apart from street lights, apart from all of the ambient light that we get at nighttime here, you can see so much more. Uh, in these clear skies at night. It's just pitch dark all around you, and the stars just stand out. The shepherd's situation was something like that. They could see all sorts of stars because it was really, really dark. No ambient light at all. And then this, the glory of the Lord shone around them. All of a sudden, they were surrounded by light. What would that have been like? I found a clue, oddly, in the life of the Apostle Paul. You remember his conversion story. He, he was stricken by a, a blinding light. He tells his story in Acts chapter 26, and in verse 13, he is sharing his story with King Agrippa, and he says this, About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. And then he told a group in Jerusalem what happened next in Acts chapter 22, Verse 11, he says, My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. And it's in that word brilliance that I found my clue. The Greek word there is doxa. It means glory. The brilliance of the light blinded me. The glory of the light Blinded me. Doxa. We get doxology from that word. Glory. Glory to God. And so this blinding light was the glory of God. Now back to the shepherds. Can you imagine the shepherds on that night went out of the pitch blackness, the blazing glory of God appeared. I wonder if they had any kind of warning. Do you think maybe the angel might have cleared his throat before you know, turning on the light just, just to kind of get him ready? As I read the text, it doesn't seem that way. It says they were terrified. Literally, they feared a great fear. In the middle of the pitch black Middle Eastern night, the curtains parted just a little bit and an angel stepped from the throne room of God 
into the presence of these shepherds. And the whole hillside was suddenly flooded with light. The text tells us that what shone was the glory of the Lord. Not the glory of the angel, but the glory of the Lord. The light the shepherds saw would have indicated the presence of someone who had been standing in the presence of God. Now, to appreciate that, I think it would be helpful to take a little trip back into the history of God's people, back to the time of Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Moses wanted more and more of his experience with God. He, he wanted it all. And he asked God at one point, show me your glory. He wanted to see the glory of God. Now, during the time of the Exodus, Moses met with God, got instructions regularly from him. And Exodus 33, verse 11 tells us that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. That doesn't mean Moses saw God's face for reasons that will become apparent in just a few verses. But what it means is they had direct interaction, like friend to friend. And it goes on to tell of this discussion they had when Moses asked for something God wasn't willing to give. Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's reply is there in verses 19 and 20. It says this, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory and live, Moses. What Moses had asked for would have taken his life. And, you know, you look at Moses, you see how he always wanted more and more of God. And I think to be consumed by the glory of God would have been just fine with him. But God had a purpose for him in setting his people free from Egypt. And so he wouldn't let him do that. He put him instead in the cleft of a rock, covered him with his hand, and let him see only the afterburners of his glory. Moses comes down from that experience on the mountain, and his face is glowing, it tells us in Exodus 34, verse 29. And it scares the Israelites. They were afraid to come near him. And so he put a veil over his face because the glory of having just stood in the presence of God was shining off of his face, and it was too much for the Israelites. Now, if that's the glory that shines off of the face of someone who has just been in the presence of God, how much more glorious would be the glory that shines from an angel who lives continually in the presence of God. And if the Israelites were afraid of this glory on the face of Moses, 
having known Moses personally, having seen Moses go up to Mount Sinai, knowing he was meeting with God, knowing he was coming back to them, how much more frightening would this whole thing be for a bunch of shepherds out in the middle of a dark night who were expecting nothing? Yet they got to see the glory of God. Can we appreciate what they saw that night? Let me uh, try to give you a little boiled down attempt of mine to get a handle on it. Any Indiana Jones fans here? Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first film? There is a scene near the end when the Nazis remove the lid from the Ark of the Covenant. And Indiana Jones tells Marion, don't look, don't look at it. And the glory of the Lord, the best Steven Spielberg can present it, comes out of the ark in a blinding light, and it consumes the bad guys. So in the second slide, you can see, you know, this one guy's kind of noticing this light on his uniform, and they're beginning to suspect something is happening. And I can't show you what happens next without scaring the children. Uh, it... It's a great scene. It's a great scene as this, the glory of God is just all-consuming. Now, if that conveys anything at all of the power of the scene the shepherds saw, it's no wonder the text tells us they were terrified. If you're the shepherds, what, what are you thinking? We're going to die. We've just seen the glory of God. And the angel needs to give them a message of assurance in verses 10 to 12. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Don't be afraid. And that leads to another privilege the shepherds get, and that is the privilege of hearing glory. Look at verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The curtain is pulled back a bit further, and it reveals an angelic army, the host of heaven, the heavenly army. That's the word, it's the, the Greek word stratia. Uh, we get strategy from that, strategic. It's the army of heaven. And they're speaking, maybe shouting, maybe singing, but it's not the sort of soprano choir filled with feminized angels that we're used to seeing in art. This is the army of heaven. And the, you, ever, you ever hear a military band or, or been up close with a military choir? And it's really, really cool. There's, there's nothing wimpy about it. I remember being at a Promise Keepers event a number of years ago. 
and they invited people to be a part of the Promise Keepers Choir. And they said, don't, don't even come up here to, to try out for it unless someone has really been impressed with your voice and told you that. Uh, what, what the guy says, if someone has heard you sing and went, ow, you, you can try out. Uh, but don't come up here if that hasn't. So those that, that made the choir were given shirts to wear, and the shirts said, real men sing real loud. Uh, that was what this Promise Keepers Choir. So, you know, I wonder what, what the heavenly army wears. I wonder what this angelic choir wears. You know, robes, maybe, but maybe robes that say, real angels sing real loud, or, or there is nothing greater than singing the glory of God. And the shepherds got to hear it. I wonder how long that angel army choir rehearsed before the big show, revealing the coming of the Son of God, Messiah. Maybe a couple millennia, they're, they're rehearsing this thing. And, and now comes the night when they get to have their big performance. And the performance is given to a bunch of nobodies working a third shift on a sheep farm. What do we know about shepherds? Shepherds may once have been a, a noble profession, but shepherding wasn't very special at the time of Jesus' birth. Shepherds couldn't observe the ceremonial law, so they, they didn't go through all the ritual cleansings that the other Jews went through, and so they were considered unclean. They were looked down upon by people who wanted to live a righteous life. You wouldn't want your son to become a shepherd. You wouldn't want your daughter to marry one. People who became shepherds at that time were mostly people who couldn't get a job doing anything else. And yet these were the guys that got to hear glory. Does that make a statement about the grace of God he chooses insignificant nobodies and pours out on them this lavish display of his glory. And we find that's how he deals with us as well. We didn't deserve salvation any more than those shepherds deserved that show that night. Any more than they deserved to be told of the birth of the Savior. But God is rich in mercy and grace and he gives us things we don't deserve. It's almost as though he went looking for the least likely candidates to pour out this lavish display on. As if to say, if I can do this for the least likely people, you will understand that it has nothing to do with deserving it. And it has everything to do with my grace. That's why I'm still amazed by grace. I don't ever want to get over the wonder of God's grace. These shepherds were recipients of grace, and that's how God deals with us as well. Yet there's a third privilege that the shepherds got, and that was the privilege of giving glory. Look at verses 15 to 20. When the angels left them and when they had left them and gone into heaven, 
The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. They saw glory, they heard glory, and they got to give glory. Now you may wonder how that third one fits. How can we give glory to God? Doesn't he have it all already? Yet the shepherds gave him glory, and we can too. How do we give glory to God? We, we give glory to God when we recognize that any glory that comes our way really belongs instead to him. Giving him glory is pointing to him as the glorious one. It's upholding him and his worth as the greatest value in the universe. You may watch some NFL football today, and you may see some athletes get to the end zone and, and put on some sort of display, some sort of celebration. End zone uh, displays are getting more and more elaborate these days. But there are some Christian athletes out there who get to the end zone and don't put on a big display. Instead, they, they just thump their chest and point up. What they're saying is, you may be looking at me, I want to point to him. He gets the glory. He deserves it. He owns it. I'm just his instrument. And any glory that comes my way, I want to reflect to him. Shepherds got an incredible display from an army of angels. They got to go to Bethlehem to be the first people to see the Savior of the world. But they didn't walk away from there saying, we must be pretty special for God to show us all of that. They went away from there giving glory to God, the one who it belongs to. They could have been proud because of what they'd seen. Instead, they gave the glory to God. There's an element of pop theology out there these days that says you must be very important for God to give his son for you. And that sounds pretty good to modern ears until you realize that it lifts us up at the expense of God and his glory. The truth of the matter is that it wasn't because we're so important that God sent his son to save us. Truth of the matter is he sent his son to save us purely because of his grace to the undeserving. You'll never fully appreciate the grace of God until you realize that it wasn't anything you had or anything you were or anything you did that deserved your salvation. It was nothing but the grace of God. That's what saves us. When you recognize that, you can give the glory 
to God. Verse 20 tells us that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. You ever think about that? They returned. What did they return to? Sheep. They returned to being shepherds. They returned to third shift on a sheep farm. They returned to very ordinary lives. But they returned as changed people. They returned as people who had experienced the glory of God. They saw it. They heard it. They got to give it back to the one it belongs to. The glory of God meets us and dazzles us and transforms us and then sends us back to our ordinary routines as extraordinary people who've been touched by the glory of God. Sends us back to demonstrate the difference that God has created in us and to make a difference through us in the lives of others. The glory of God is dazzling. God shows his glory to insignificant people like shepherds and like children and homemakers and home builders and college students and pastors, all of us. In order to meet us where we are, touch us with his grace and send us back to live as changed people. The shepherds saw glory and it scared them to death. The shepherds heard glory and they realized how undeserving they were. And the shepherds gave glory to God, recognizing him as the one it really belongs to. Want to see glory? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. I want to see glory, look at the face of Jesus. I want to see glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I want to see glory? Look at Jesus. In him we experience glory. We see it in his face. We hear it in the praises of his people. We give it to him as we live lives that are surrendered to him. Lives that say thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The angels proclaimed Jesus' birth what we're about to do in the next few minutes proclaims his death, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This baby came to us. We celebrate his birth at Christmas, but he came to us for a purpose, and that was to live a holy and perfect life and then to die in our place, taking on himself all of us our sin, paying its penalty in full. 
And the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Angels proclaimed his birth. What we do here proclaims his death until he comes. It's a graphic reminder of the cost of our salvation. The perfect lamb of God gave himself for us purely out of his grace. And he offers salvation to all of us as a free gift for anyone who will say, Lord, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need your grace to save me. Would you forgive me and live in me? And if you have done that, you're welcome at his table. And if God is prompting you to do that now, just to say to him, Lord, I need you. I want you in my life. I invite you in. You're welcome to make a fresh start even now. To know that your sin is forgiven. To know that you can have a relationship with God that goes on forever. You can celebrate that right here at his table with us. What we'll do in a moment is is I'll invite you to come up and and take one of these little sets. There's, There's a little wafer under the cellophane at the top. Just peel that back. And there's juice uh, underneath a, a foil layer below that. The bread, the wafer, represents the body of the Lord Jesus given for us. The, the juice represents his blood that was poured out for us to forgive us our sin. And so I, I'm going to invite you to come when you're ready and, and take that back to your seat. And, and just uh, in, in a moment of quiet to to go ahead and and take those elements and be reminded again of the cost of your salvation. The Apostle Paul, though, right after those words I just read, encourages us to examine ourselves before we come to the table of the Lord, to uh, examine our hearts to make sure we're not cherishing some sin there, that we can confess our sin to him and find forgiveness full and free. And so we can come to him with a clear account and a clear conscience. And so I'm going to invite us now just to take a moment, quiet our hearts before him, invite him to search us and confess our sin to him and find in him the forgiveness that he longs to extend to us. And then when you're ready, come take the elements back to your seat and commune with him in a special way. Let's examine our hearts now.